What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Joshua Browder is the co-founder and CEO of Do Not Pay, the world's first robot lawyer. He fundamentally believes in using the internet to empower the average consumer to defend their rights. In this conversation, we discuss Do Not Pay's product development, company growth, being the Robin Hood of the internet, any regulatory pushback, credit dispute letters, HOA products, photo ninja, and angel investing. I really enjoyed this conversation with Joshua, and I think you will as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include high-yield interest accounts, U.S. dollar loans against your crypto collateral, and no-fee cryptocurrency exchange. They're also coming out with a Bitcoin Rewards credit card. It's a normal credit card, but when you swipe it, you'll get Bitcoin back rather than cashback or airline miles. I really think that you'll enjoy being a user at BlockFi. I am. I'm a big investor in the company. I sit on the board, and I just fundamentally believe in the mission that the company is going after. So go check it out at BlockFi.com slash pomp. Again, BlockFi.com slash pomp, financial products for crypto investors. Next up is Choice. Choice is rebuilding the way you approach retirement, which starts with making it simple to include Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in your savings. More than 20,000 Bitcoiners, myself included, have already signed up to start investing. To celebrate tax day being moved back to today, I'm partnering with Choice to give away $62.50 of free Bitcoin to anyone who opens and funds an account with a minimum of $100 before end of day today. Whether you want to open a traditional or Roth IRA, all you have to do is sign up, fund your account, and Choice will give you $62.50 of tax advantage Bitcoin. Don't leave free Bitcoin on the table. Head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, that's retirewithchoice.com slash pomp and sign up for an account today. And one more thing, you know how I feel about this, but if you have a pro that manages your money, don't take any BS. Choice has tools for them too. Take back control today and visit retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Last but not least are my friends over at Gemini. Gemini is a leading regulated cryptocurrency exchange, wallet, and custodian that makes it simple and secure to buy Bitcoin, Ether, and over 30 other cryptocurrencies. They offer industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. Gemini is the go-to trusted platform for beginner and sophisticated investors alike. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, the founders of Gemini, have been on the podcast and I just am a huge fan of their courage and conviction from early in the days of Bitcoin. So go check out Gemini. You can open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash pomp and get $20 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Again, go to Gemini.com slash pomp and you'll get $20 of Bitcoin completely for free after you've traded 100 bucks or more within 30 days. Gemini.com slash pomp. Go check it out. All right, let's get into this episode with Joshua. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
One quick technical note before we begin. For the first 30 seconds, Pomp's audio does not sound good. But after 30 seconds, it gets fixed and sounds great the rest of the episode. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Joshua here with me in person in Miami. If you're not in Miami, where are you really? You're doing this, man. Thank you for having me. He came in with the swag on, too, with the nice white sweatshirt. It's way too hot for Miami, but I should still do shameless promotion, <laughs> even if I'm hot for it. It's all right. I wear a sweatshirt in here. Yeah. It's a little chilly, so it's fine. Um, let's just get started. Uh, how do you like Miami? Let's just start there. I love it. It's like the land of the free. And I'm not just saying that. Everyone here is, um, I was at a coffee shop and uh, the barista was like, what do you do? And I was like, I work in tech. And she's like, oh, you work in tech? That's great. But in San Francisco, you get a very different attitude to that. What is the attitude in San Francisco? <laughs> just like dirty looks, wear a mask, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I laughed in, uh, when I saw, I think it was Jason Kalkanis tweeted the other day, and he said uh, he got yelled in San Francisco for not wearing a mask, and in Austin, Texas, he got yelled at for wearing a mask. And I was like, I don't know you know, like if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it very much highlights the difference of the attitudes uh, in terms of like individual sovereignty and, and their relationship with government and rules in those two places, right? Yeah, Miami's neutral. No one gets upset with you either way. I tend to think that's yeah. the right way to think about it. Um, all right, Do Not Pay is one of these companies where I feel like everyone loves what you guys are doing. Uh, let's just start with like your background. Where'd you grow up? Uh, you've got an incredible story and your family's been involved in a whole bunch of crazy stuff uh, before you started the company. So maybe just walk us through like your life before you started the company. So um, I was a high school student in England and um, it was my dream to come to Silicon Valley. I taught myself to code using like Stanford YouTube videos. And I thought if I can get there to this place, it's a dream come true. And so I got into Stanford and moved there six years ago now. Um, and when I went there, it lived up to my expectations. Um, I was in the center of Silicon Valley and it really changed my life and allowed me to start Do Not Pay. What, why do you say that it lived up to your expectations? Like what, what were the expectations and then what were the parts of Stanford and Silicon Valley that you were like, wow, this is like the place I want to be? I think um, America is the land of opportunity. The most successful company in the UK is maybe Deliveroo. Um, but the most successful company in the US is Stripe. I'd much rather be closer to Stripe than Deliveroo. And lots of the VCs and my friends starting companies have the same attitude. Yeah. And so when you get there, did you know you want to start a company? Was it more so just, I want to be in the technology industry? Like, what was your thought process going into Stanford and then the first you know, couple of months or years that you're there? I always knew I wanted to tinker with projects as an engineer, but I fell into my company Do Not Pay by accident by getting all these parking tickets. We'll get to the parking tickets in a second. Cause you told me a story before yeah. and it's absurd. Uh, growing up though, your dad uh, went to Russia and had this ridiculous uh, kind of experience where basically he's an American in a foreign country, uh, really um, understood how to invest capital in a very kind of, uh, and compound that capital at a very aggressive uh, pace. But it's Russia. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on there from a political standpoint, from a safety standpoint. And his experience ends up being written into a book, Red Notice, uh, Bill Browder, for those that don't know. And uh, what is your kind of like understanding of this as you're growing up? Do you know what's going on? Do, are you kind of sheltered from a lot of this? Like just what was it as a young kid first? Um, it was very scary. Um, I think the scariest aspect was when my father devoted everything to fight the Russians. Um, and it's one thing to go after like, maybe like government bureaucrats or have legal problems, but it's another thing to go after the mafia. And so lots of scary things happened. He was deported. Um, his lawyer was murdered. And it really taught me to be fearless in life. Um, it puts everything pers in perspective. Um, 
when something minor happens, I just think it could be a lot worse. Yeah. And so when I read the book, I didn't know you, I obviously didn't know him. Uh, the thing that I took away from it was just like, you hear these stories of Eastern Europe or Russia or, you know, wh wherever around the world, and you're like, it can't really be that bad. It was really that bad, right? When, I mean, when you read the story, it's insane. Uh, why do you think your dad actually like drew the line in the sand and said, I'm going to go devote my life essentially to go and, and fight this? And obviously the Manitsky Act and, and a whole bunch of stuff that has come out of it um, has been kind of the, the fruits of that labor. But what kind of drove that decision? I think for him when, um, and I can't speak for him, but when his lawyer was murdered, um, he, he felt like he was a part of that. And so he wants to get justice for the lawyer. The lawyer gave his life for justice. And so the least he could do was give his life uh, for justice for the lawyer. Yeah. And so for you, now that you're older and you kind of look back to that time, is there anything that you kind of take away now that maybe you didn't appreciate it at the time or, or didn't really understand that was happening? I think um, just how unjust the world can be. I think in Silicon Valley or even in the UK, um, people can tell themselves the world is so great. It's so great out there, but there are some really bad people and some really bad things going on. Yeah. So that brings me to my favorite question always. Uh, it's cheating when I talk to a technologist, but technology net positive or net negative for the world? Strong net positive. <laughs> I, I feel like anyone who says that is probably in San Francisco still, which is ironic that it's a net negative. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's uh, when I worked at Facebook, people would always bring this up, right? Like Facebook is like, you know, ruining the world. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, sure. Of course, there's negative impacts when you connect a bunch of humans, but it's more so you're probably just allowing humans to be humans. Uh, but look at all of the positive impact, right? People can stay in touch with their families. They can share photos. They can learn things. They can communicate. Like all of this is a net positive positive and so the negative side effects of technology seem to be very very minuscule compared to the the positive aspects i think technology is um being used for some very negative things but in, in aggregate it's very positive and that's what i see with do not pay we're trying to bring the positive aspects of technology to the legal system it's already being used in the negative aspects like algorithmic sentencing and things we want to give that power to the consumer yeah and so when you think of like the negative aspects is that mostly like big technology companies is it like nefarious or malicious actors or do you think a lot of it's just people are trying to use technology and then there's negative side effects that they maybe didn't intend uh, or didn't realize when they started i think um it's a weapon and um, the, the weapons in life immediately go to the rich and powerful big corporations and then over time trickle down to consumers. And so I think it's just being used by the people that want to use it negatively at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you start do not pay and it all starts with parking tickets on Stanford's campus <laughs> yes. from my understanding. Uh, tell us that story of why were you getting so many parking tickets? Well, everyone drives on the other side of the road here and I was a terrible driver and um, I would not have time to scratch a permit because I was going to class or park perfectly in the bay. And what I learned is um, in Stanford, but more so in San Francisco, the government issues tickets, not necessarily to punish people. I'm a very unsympathetic and terrible driver, but sometimes to raise money. Um, and I couldn't afford to pay the tickets. They're like $100 a piece. Um, and so I had to become an expert getting out of them. And there was this rumor among my friends that um, I was the parking ticket guy. And so all of a sudden, they all started asking me for my help as well. And I was spending maybe two hours a day on um, Microsoft Word back then, copying and pasting documents for my friends. And I thought, what am I doing with my life? Like, why isn't this automated? And more so, why do you have to pay a lawyer 50% of the cost of the ticket um, if you don't have the time to research for hours in the night like I do? So I created the first version of Do Not Pay. 
just for fun, really, to impress my friends. And we went from one case on day one myself um, to about a dozen cases on day two, all my friends who I now no longer had to waste time on Microsoft Word for, um, to 30,000 cases on day three, because one of my friends um, was a blogger at the Huffington Post. And she wrote about it and it went internationally viral because it turns out everyone in the world hates parking tickets. And so did it work on like every college campus? Did it work for any city? Or how did it work on day one? On day one, it worked for all of the UK and Stanford. Um, so no, it didn't. People were just submitting cases and uh, it wouldn't actually work for them. And so I thought <laughs> I have to expand this thing really quickly. Like 30,000 people yeah. are showing up and <laughs> yeah. I can't help them. Exactly. They're going to they're gonna turn their, uh, their yeah. anger and madness on me rather than, uh, rather than on the people giving the parking ticket. Yeah. And I had like 12 followers on Twitter at the time. I'd never gone viral, been contacted by anyone. And all of a sudden I was getting like 300 angry emails a day saying like, uh, by the way, can you help me with my Comcast dispute as well? Really? And so after the parking ticket uh, kind of, I don't know, dispute, right, uh, platform or, or product, what did you build next? I really used all these emails to go after corporations. So I started with airlines. And, th and then the next big product after that was helping people sue Equifax for the big data breach. Mm -hmm. And so all you're doing is you're basically creating almost a form to some degree, right? And it automates, hey, enter in your information around you specifically, whether it's your name, your claim number, whatever it is. Uh, and then you guys would do everything from generate demand letters or kind of dispute letters all the way to actually file things for folks. Uh, and so as you're doing this, it seems like you're almost like just listening to customers. They tell you, hey, I have a problem. You guys write some software. Okay, now we can solve that. You now have 200 of these. Yes. At what point are you like, hey, this isn't like me impressing my friends anymore. Like this is going to be a company. Like what, when does that kind of hit you? I think about a year in, I um, one of the VC partners on Sand Hill Road actually used Do Not Pay successfully, and he convinced me to make it into a company. And so I did the standard roadshow pitching to lots of VC firms. And um, I was lucky Andreessen Horowitz uh, believed in me and invested a million to get it off the ground. Okay. And did they have to like convince you? Like, did you not want to start a company and they had to like convince you to do it? Or, or what is that first conversation like? I, will, I believe companies are the way that things get done in, in the world. And so I knew I wanted to start a company, but at the same time, I didn't have any business model. I was just like, I love this product. I hate the government. I want to build a product to fight the government. I didn't know how I would charge people or what would the business model be. Yeah. And so as you're starting to raise the money, uh, what are like the funny conversations like, right? Does every investor immediately get in there? It's like, yes, this is amazing. Or are there people who are just like, dude, what are you talking about? This is crazy. And you know, I'm not funding a parking ticket dispute company. Yeah, that was like 90% of the conversations. But at that point, I pr it was still parking tickets, but I had the vision of expanding to other areas and I was lucky they believed in that. Yeah, and so when you raise the capital, what do you do next? Do you go hire a bunch of people? Do you just sit on the cash? Like, what did you guys do? Um, we rented uh, the Mark Zucker the house Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in and was super lean and just stayed there for months on end, creating more bots. So we did the airlines, we did Equifax, landlord tenant disputes. And over time we had enough bots that eventually we could charge a subscription. All right. Why Mark Zuckerberg's first Facebook house? Is there like some element of uh, specifically seeking that house out? Was it some kind of like message to the world? Why that house? It was great marketing because um, every other day a bus of people would come and we could just give them do not pay app invites. <laughs> 
So, what? And the landlord was a relic of a different era. And so he didn't really use Zillow or know how much the house was worth. So we actually got a great deal on it. And we didn't actually find it as Mark Zuckerberg's house. We just found it as a cheap house and later found out when we we're signing the lease that it, we got a good deal. Really? Yes. And so would people show up on like tours or like how, how are they showing up? It, yeah, they show up on tours because everyone comes from around the world to see this house that we were just living in. It's really not a very nice house. Yeah. And so then you guys would have like flyers or, or how would you like hand out the invites? Yeah. So usually they wouldn't expect to be let in, um, but we would say, come on in. However, you have to put your email down to enter the house. Ah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. And then would you guys like give like a tour inside the house or just like let them wander Yeah, we'd around? have to waste some time with a tour and come up with some story. <laughs> <laughs> right here, let me yeah. tell you what Mark did in the <laughs> yeah. living room. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> we were just trying to get emails for our initial users. <laughs> What's the craziest story you think you guys made up about the house? I mean, we didn't make anything up, but we we're like, this is Mark's bed. And it probably was Mark's bed, but still. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I've seen you describe do not pay as a compound startup. This whole idea of it kind of continues to grow, accelerate, build on top of itself. Just where does that terminology come from? Like, how do you think about a startup uh, kind of going from idea to a compound startup? And, and what does that take? Being a compound startup kind of um, goes against all the typical advice. It's more popular now, but when we started, it wasn't very popular. The typical advice is focus on one small thing and grow from there. The problem with do not pay is that the average driver, unless you're a bad driver like me, only gets a parking ticket once a, once a year. So they would forget about the service every time they use it and you'd have to reacquire the customer and all this stuff. So I knew for do not pay to be successful, it'd have to help a consumer every month. And luckily there are many disputes that a consumer has. People are being ripped off left, right and center, but um, one has to build that. So I actually spent four years building out the infrastructure to generate these letters, send it off to the right place before I felt comfortable even charging people. Yeah. And so when you think through kind of the product today, uh, is it just automated lawyers essentially? Or like, how do you describe it to people? I like to think of it um, as the general counsel for the consumer. I don't tell consumers that because no one knows what a general yep. counsel is, but a robot lawyer, general counsel, and they're sitting on their shoulders watching their back. So when Comcast send a $1,000 debt collection letter, they can come to do not pay and have some recourse to fight back. So uh, there's a lot of similarities between your dad going and kind of seeking justice, right? And then you basically uh, going up against these corporations, going up against you know local governments who you know are fundraising through parking tickets, et cetera. Yes. Uh, you've been called the Robin Hood of the internet, which is just one of badass name to be called. Undeserved, but, but uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe in 20 years. <laughs> but like, is there an element of uh, we're using technology to kind of fight back against the system or is that just kind of happenstance? People like to spin that story. No, I really dislike authority and just love to live free, which is why I think Miami aligns with the do not pay values. Um, the legal system is very protectionist. Um, to be a lawyer, you have to get the stamp of approval from a bar association. And if you're representing a consumer and you're not a lawyer, you can even spend time in prison. So they're very protective because they like to keep their $1,800 average fee for the top 50 law firms. Yeah. And so as you build this, do you, is there a way that you guys like measure impact or dollars or, or like the severity of the problem when you say, hey, we've got 200 products today, we're going to add the 201st one. Like, How do you evaluate what's the next thing you go do? By the end of this year, we're looking to save around 100 million in aggregate for consumers. Um, a lot of our products save people time, like canceling subscriptions um, as well. 
Yeah. And so when you evaluate that new product, right, let's say you have three different options to choose from. Like, what's yeah. the framework you use to say, like, we should launch this one before, you know, the other two? So we have three rules for ourselves. The first is it has to be truly mass market, 50 million Americans plus. Um, everyone gets robocalls, for example. And that precludes a lot of ideas like startup tax credits. That's not something we would ever do. The second rule is it has to be fully automated. Um, we've built tools to phone up the DMV and do all the clicking. So we, we uh, automated is a big scope for us, but we can't have an army of people typing out these letters. And then the third is it has to be related to consumer rights. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and so when you think about kind of doing this, I think a lot of people look and say, hey, it's, you know, Joshua, the do not pay team and the consumer versus the man, yes. right? And it's very much uh, kind of taking back rights, uh, using technology to, uh, to do this. But also in many cases, you're actually just, reducing friction. You're reducing barrier to uh, things that people have a right to. So for example, the pandemic relief, right? There was all kinds of programs created. There was all sorts of money or services that were available to folks. One, they may not know, or two, it may just suck to go and apply. And so you guys, it sounds like created a whole bunch of products uh, that could help them do that. Talk a little bit just about the pandemic and those types of products. Yeah, so at the height of the pandemic, um, we were at about 20% unemployment. And so all of the state unemployment systems built maybe during the 1960s completely crashed. And people were really upset by that. And so what Do Not Pay did is we found a workaround. It turns out that the US mail is the API for the government. And although they had all these online systems, you could still send in the paper form. So we built a bot to fill in the form for um, unemployment benefits in all 50 states. Um, and mailed it in automatically with an API. So when you do that, like I go online, right? I basically type in my information. What happens from there until a physical piece of paper is mailed? Um, it will go through the questions and explain the questions to you because sometimes you don't even know you're giving up rights by saying yes or no to these questions. Um, and once it does that, it generates all the paperwork in under 30 seconds and mails it off to the right place. Got it. And so basically it almost like takes the answer from a digital form. It then like prints out a piece of paper that has it. And then you just have a human who grabs that piece of paper, puts it into an envelope and mails it. Or do you even outsource that? Uh, there are APIs now to do that. It's a great time to be alive. Yeah, that's wild, <laughs> yeah. right? So basically you don't even have to deal with the physical mail. You're literally just hitting an API and some other company or product is taking care of actually printing this piece of paper, putting it in an envelope and mailing it. Yeah, we don't go outside. We're just coding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you don't go outside <laughs> <Yeah>. at all? <laughs> no, but just metaphorically yeah. well you know you're if you're in miami it's nice to go outside yeah. here right yeah. <laughs> um when you think about how many people use these services for the pandemic related stuff like how does that compare in popularity to your other products that weren't pandemic related um at the time it was a few hundred thousand now it's died down and the as the world is opening up all the typical bureaucracy is increasing again so dmv bureaucracy all of that yep uh you're pushing back against government and institutional type overreach. Uh, I'm assuming that they don't like you. I'm also assuming that they don't just sit there and take it on the chin. Yeah. So what is the pushback from either the uh, credit companies that you guys are kind of pushing back against, you know, the Comcast of the world, the local governments, uh, any of the tax organizations, et cetera? Like just what what's kind of the, the pushback that you're receiving? It's an arms race. So they try and block do not pay from interacting with their systems completely. So for example, one product we have is called the free trial credit card. It's a credit card. You can sign up for any free trial and it does, it's not linked to you. It's not even linked to your bank account. Um, and Netflix blocks our entire card network from that. So we have to switch it. 
um, and keep innovating to stop them. But we're more motivated than them, so I'm not too worried about it. So you have a product where I can go, I can use this. It's essentially a virtual card, yes. right? And then I can use that virtual card to sign up for a free trial on Netflix. And if I forget to cancel it at the end of the free trial, I basically can't get charged because it was never tied to yeah, me, do not my pay, credit. Taking the risk. Okay. And so I'm assuming then at the end of the free trial, if they try to come back, you guys are canceling it, being able to dispute it or whatever, right? Yes. And, and so, so you, they hate us. Yeah. So you can take a lot of risk <laughs> yeah. mitigation yeah. efforts. Uh, when they figure out what you're doing, they try to block you. And then it's literally a cat and mouse game of, can you figure another way in? Yeah. And we see this with the government too, them blocking our IPs. So we've built this workaround <laughs> where when someone uses the do not pay app, the appeal is submitted from their IP address on the phone. So it's like very decentralized. So they have to block all the IPs, um, not just one do not pay IP. So really what you're doing here is you're essentially spending all day long figuring out not only one, how to build the automated systems and what products to build, but then you're also building this like uh, almost anti-establishment decentralized uh, technology stack that allows you guys to continue to do this without having a single point of failure. That's, that's exactly right. I feel like I have the best job in the world. I didn't know it's actually a real job to be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I say that they must not like you, uh, maybe I, I underestimated. They yeah. must really fucking hate you. <laughs> they really do, yeah. <laughs> have they ever sent you like cease and desist letters or like, like what's like the worst thing that's ever happened in terms of the pushback? We've certainly got lots of cease and desist letters. <laughs> um, we uh, have a bot that lets us know whenever someone signs up with a .gov address and we get like three a day it's very interesting everyone is signing up from the government across the u.s and they want to see how it works or they want to use the service to get out of a parking ticket or something both, both. Um, but they're trying to scope it out and what do you do if they sign up from a .gov address we, we leave them alone but we watch them very carefully <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. In some way, now they're on your turf, right? Yeah. And, and so you you can uh, pay attention. <laughs> there is some positive, though. When we launched in Los Angeles, NPR asked the head of the Los Angeles parking ticket bureau what he thought of Do Not Pay. And he said, I actually love it because people write such gibberish in their parking ticket appeals, at least when it comes from Do Not Pay. It's standardized. And that's better spin than I even I could have come up with. Yeah, so really what they're saying is like, look, if people are going to write in, then we'd rather it all be standardized and we know what it says. It has the information that we need, whatever, versus uh, we have to read a bunch of handwriting or whatever. Yeah, I think bureaucracy holds us all back, even the government. Yeah, so in some weird way, even though you're fighting them by giving them a standardized letter or information or whatever, you can actually make them better at their job and just make it a more efficient process between the dispute and the uh, government or the credit agency or whatever. Yeah, and we're very humble. We know that in New York City, they make a billion dollars a year from tickets. And so even if we're appealing a few million dollars a year from New York, we're just a drop in the water. So we're actually saving them their biggest cost base, which is dealing with these appeals. Yeah. How bad is the government bureaucracy? I, it's, it's really, really bad, even worse <laughs> than most people say. So for example, um, the federal government only stopped using floppy disks entirely in 2016. Floppy disks. So... And I'm assuming that the switching cost for them to go from floppy disk to whatever technology they're using now was not minuscule, right? Like you see these bills, you see the budgets that they have for like stupid stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think in one of the pandemic uh, relief bills, there was $25 million in the bill for cleaning supplies of the Capitol building. 
which by the way, I don't know how big it is. I don't know how much the cleaning supply should cost, but that just seems like $25 million is not one going to last forever, right? So like, what is that for a year or two of cleaning supplies? And that just seems like a lot. Yeah, um, there's a really big scandal. The TSA was trying to make an app that said, should passengers go left or right, just randomly, whether they should go left or right, it cost $1.4 million to, to just point an arrow in either direction in a random format. And why did it cost so much? They have these contractors that um, take advantage of the situation and are so entrenched with lobbyists and things like that and p procurement processes that they get the contract. Is that a do not pay a potential product in the future? Is the TSA's left or right app that you could just go and help them out and buy some goodwill with them? It seems like uh, they wouldn't like us very much. <laughs> Do they, are they yeah. scared that you may you may start confusing people on purpose <laughs> to, to cause mass chaos at the TSA line? Yeah. <laughs> All the Amex colors can go right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, when you think about the company over the next like three, five, ten years, wh what does this become? Is it just literally almost an army of like robot lawyers and you just continue to knock out product after product feature uh, and eventually you can kind of eat into the everyday life, right? In terms of just every single thing you interface, uh, do not pay as a solution if you have a problem or is there some other vision? That's exactly right, but with the caveat that do, you shouldn't even have to know what do not pay is. It should just be, um, hey, we've got you $500 in your bank account today. So right now, people come to do not pay with a problem. Um, we want to make it so that do not pay just comes with a solution that you didn't even know about. And is this a purely subscription play where you just are going to continue to say, hey, pay us one you know, price point, and then you're going to get all of these like army of robots that are on your side forever just constantly working for you? Yeah, I think it's best that we work for our customers. Yeah. Uh, are there corporations or any types of you know products or things that you can do with non-retail like retail or consumer uh, type customers? Or is it just continue to serve the individual people and everything else is a distraction? I think as long as it helps 50 million people, it doesn't matter who they are. So we've got small business products, finance products. So we're looking to be more sophisticated, but it has to impact everyone. Yeah. What is like a small business product example? responding to DMCA takedown requests. A lot of websites get harassed with these requests and do not pay can just deal with them, yeah. deal for, the, for you. What about patents? Anything in the patent space that you guys have looked at? That seems like the uh, the patent trolls are having a field day these days. I, I, it's not something we can do. I, you probably have to go into court. Um, and also patents are being unwinded in the US as we speak. Yes. Uh, uh, what is it? Is it the vaccines? They're saying that they're going to take away all the patents or like kind of like de-teeth them, I guess, so that yes. now people can... As know. a first step. Do we think that's a good idea? I think um, whenever you have inconsistency where some rules are being applied differently, I've seen firsthand how that can go uh, snowball in the wrong direction. So I think that maybe the mission could be good, but Treating things inconsistently is never a good idea in the legal system. Yeah, it feels like we got a crash course in that over the last 12 months of local, state, and federal governments picking and choosing when to implement certain rules and actually enforce them or not. And the other part I think that we learned is like there's a very big difference between like law on the books or rules in the book and then actually enforcing them. And it feels like what you guys really do is you essentially are looking at what are the actual rules on the book versus how are they being enforced. And there's some exploitation that you can do there in the name of the consumer to basically fight back, right? That's right. Yeah. And how much of the products that you guys build is pure technicality based? Like, hey, we just know that if you do, you know, send a letter, ask for this and, yeah. and you know, I don't know 
pay 20 bucks, then you get out of the parking ticket that was $300 versus it's more so, um, you know, actually the merit of the case, right? Where it's like the individual details really matter. We are strongly focused on the law. So there have, there have been companies in the past, they call them loophole companies, where they automate uh, credit card policies, for example. The problem is that the big companies only offer these loopholes because they think no one will use them. All of a sudden, AI comes along and automates the um, price protection on your credit card, and the credit card company says, we're losing too much money, we're going to stop this overnight. And so do not pay is entirely US laws. Admittedly, there are some areas where if you're sending this long note to United's legal department, they're probably so scared that they rule in your favor, but at least it's based in law rather than um, just some loophole. Yeah. And so really, it's just a sustainability play, right? It, it allows you to build products that aren't going to just disappear overnight. Yes. Got it. Uh, global launch uh, or global markets. Uh, when I want to ask for people for questions. That seems to be like one of the big areas. That and Android. So I don't know, just all iOS yeah. and desktop right now, or w- what's the platforms? Everyone always says, complains about Android, but do not pay.com works perfectly on all devices. And so do you have a iOS app as well? Or We yeah. do, yeah. Okay, do you have an Android app? No. No, but the website works, so just like the mobile web. Yes, and it's really good. All right, so Android users, go, opinion. Yeah, go <laughs> use the mobile web, <laughs> and you should be okay. And you can add it to your home screen as well. Oh, so it's basically yeah. like an app. It's just like yeah. a DIY app, right? Like, just do it yourself, yeah. put it on your home <laughs> homepage. My thesis is I want to rely on as few gatekeepers as possible. I accidentally relied on Apple in the past, and I've had my issues with them. I'm not looking to expand to more gatekeepers. What were the issues and why do you say accidentally uh, relied on them? Well, as a naive like Stanford, former Stanford student, I thought an app is great. But then I launched on the app store and um, it was good for a few years. And one day Apple said, uh, we want 30%. And also you have too many, your app is too app store like. um, And so you have 30 days. And so on election night, they actually removed us. And only when there was public uproar and we changed it a bit, did they... I've changed that mind. And they wanted 30% of the subscription. Yes. But there was a point in time where they didn't take 30%. That's right. And okay. they just change their policies every day. It's worse than the government. At least the government is transparent and um, there are different judges. But if there's one corporation, they act in their own interests. Uh, is it a monopoly? A hundred percent. I'm you following so? the Epic Games. That's my one regret about leaving the Bay Area. I'd probably go to one, take a day off and go to the trial with <laughs> Tim Sweeney. Do you think they're going to win? I, I think that um, 50-50, the law is not so strong. It should be made stronger, but it's so egregious. Some of these emails, what Apple are doing, like we will crush the competition in, in emails that um, something's going to happen. It is pretty crazy. I, I haven't yeah. paid a ton of attention, but the things that I've read, I think on both sides, frankly, right? It's like, whoa, this is way worse than we thought, both in terms of uh, the egregious and kind of the overreach of the app store and the fees and all stuff. Yeah. Uh, but then also like uh, what some of the companies are doing, right, where they explicitly know that it's against the app store rules, but they're trying to do it to intentionally kind of elicit the response and, and yeah. all of that. Uh, but the other thing that I think was the most surprising out of everything I read was there's this uh, belief that, hey, we always charge the same thing to every app. And then you find out like, well, actually that's not true because there are some applications that are allowed to, whether it's trials, percentages, user yes. payment processors within their applications. And I think that like my takeaway from all of it is like, hey, we all kind of knew you were doing this. So just don't say that you're not doing it, right? Like if you just said, hey, look, by the way, yeah, if you're fucking Amazon, like you get to use your payment processor inside yeah. the app. If you're not Amazon, you don't get to do that. 
people won't like it, but they'll just be like, okay, like I'm not Amazon, right? Yeah. Instead, when you're like, oh, everyone has to play by the same rules, and then it comes out that you're not doing that, that's what it seems like. It's almost like you're, uh, it, somebody once told me uh, the crime's not the worst part, it's the cover up. Like that feels like in this case, that's true. Yeah, and in the Amazon example, they they covered it up by saying, oh no, they didn't get a special deal. That was part of the premium video subscription program, which they invented just to cover up. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real, real story. Uh, what about global markets? Uh, you're in the US and the UK. What other markets are you in? And are there certain markets that you're thinking about going to that you're not in today? I think do not pay will work anywhere that has a rule of law. So Canada, South Africa, Europe, with that said, though, the Euro, uh, U.S. is stuck in the 1980s, so we have too much work here before we expand more. Why do you say it's stuck in the 1980s? Um, several courts still require you to fax documents. We have a list of 40 different products coming up this year just in the U.S., so our work is cut out for us. Do you, Can I make a product suggestion, which means that it'll probably be stupid, but you'll uh, No, you'll we'll do it this. next week. Okay, so uh, I got married last year. Yeah. And my wife went to change her name. And there, I think there are companies where you can like mail all your documents in yeah. right, and try to change all this. Uh, it's a nightmare. But the thing that blew my mind was in some states, you have to get it written into the newspaper in order to have it recognized as a legal <laughs> name change. Yeah. And I literally, when I got told this, I was like, excuse me? <laughs> like, I didn't even know some newspapers still existed, let alone that the law requires you to write your name in the newspaper. Yeah, well, you'll be happy to know that we are actually doing that. Uh, in the next few weeks so. you, <laughs> we're on it we, we know where, where if the uh, are. when you launch it you know that people will be like wow that is yeah. the fastest product development cycle in the world yeah. <laughs> what are products that people have suggested that you're like man we really want to do that but there's some sort of obstacle between you know where you are today and being able to actually do it i think divorce is the biggest one um, interesting so a majority of americans have negative net worth and so when they want to do an uncontested divorce there's no assets to split. It should be very simple. With that said, it still costs $3,000 yeah. around on and, average. And so where's that cost coming from? Filing $1,000 in filing fees, 2000 to hire a lawyer to make sure you fill out the paperwork right. And do not pay can't do that because um, there's lots of human involvement built into the system. Mm -hmm. And um, there will be one day when people will have their AirPods on and do not pay is whispering into their AirPods, but not yet. So... I'm assuming that you get blowback if you say, hey, we want to automate divorce. Yeah. People are like, oh, you shouldn't let, you know, do that. That shouldn't be easy. There should be a lot of friction, whatever. Yeah. How do you just think about, you know, in these situations where there's going to be blowback, whether it's right or wrong, just yeah. around if you automate something and make it easier, of course, more people are going to do it. Is that just a, hey, let the free market decide if they want to do this or not? Or like, what, what's the thought process you use to kind of think through that? Yeah, so we have this product, Sue Corporations at the press of a button. <laughs> and that sounds very dangerous because, um, People could abuse it. But what I've noticed over the past six years working on Do Not Pay is the crazies already know how to abuse the system. <laughs> um, if it really takes them downloading an app or going on a website, signing up, paying for a subscription and going through this long flow, um, they're probably not crazy in the first place. And so we've had very little I mean, I think we've banned about a dozen users over the past six years. So very little abuse. What were the banned users doing? Um, like 1,000 cases. <laughs> well, we, we have systems in place that if, if it gets too much. Yeah, but it's, it's like trying to sue 1,000 corporations. Yeah. I only, I, do you have an example or do you remember what they were trying to sue for? 
I'm not sure I, I should talk about okay. it for legal reasons, but... Okay, so it sounds like it was yeah. pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the new products that you have is an HOA product, which I think anyone who is anywhere remotely near an HOA hates yeah, it, right? everyone. Uh, what does the product do and kind of how did that come about? I uh, lived in an HOA in San Francisco. Um, three do not pay employees hate their HOAs. Everyone I've spoken to hates their HOAs. And there are all these rights that people have regarding this. So they can't just um, fine you uh, without any like uh, kind of recourse. Uh, so do not pay gives you that recourse, stops them from fining you. Um, you can complain, have reviews, see documents, because it's very secretive sometimes. They hold these secretive meetings and they're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, we fined you $1,000. Uh, the building that I live in yeah. uh, here in Miami, literally, they have a board. I don't know who's on the board. Nobody knows who's on the board. <laughs> yeah. And when people want to move into the building, you have to apply. And like in the application process, they're literally like, well, it could take one day or 14. Yeah. Right. And you just like, OK, this whole thing's rigged somehow. <laughs> like, I don't know how. Right. Because I don't even know who it is. I don't know what the process is. But they basically yeah. get a packet and they make the decision. And I have this theory that is actually just one person <laughs> yeah. right, who's making all the decisions. And it's like the person who owns the building or something. Yeah. Has to change. Yeah. So, uh, how many, what percentage of the product you guys build are internally thought of and it's just like a personal pain point or an employee versus external, like whether it's customers writing in, asking for something, or just like you talk to a friend and they give you an idea. I say they combine together. So the customers come up with the general problem. Like I hate robo coolers. And then we use our internal, um, hacks to solve that problem. So with robo coolers, the biggest challenge is knowing who they are. Um, you can actually sue robocallers for up to 1.5K per call, um, but they hide behind these spoof numbers and they don't give you their real name. So one of the things I personally did was um, I realized you can track them down by giving them a credit card number. And when the decline transaction hits, you find out the business name, phone number and address through the payment network. So and then we, sue them. And then sue them. So we've built a honey trap credit card for that product, for example. So the problem came from our users, but the solution came from do not pay internally. So right now I can go on do not pay. I can basically yeah. come up with a credit card. I can answer a robo call. I give them the credit card number. Yeah. They try to charge the number. Now all of a sudden I know who it is. And, and then, then you send them the demand letter and go through the suing process. And do people get money for this? Yeah, up to 1.5K per call. And what's, these robo callers <laughs> are really scared of a class action lawsuit. And so they were actually settled quickly. They settle on the highest percentage out of anything, even more than like a security deposit. Really? Yeah. How much money do you think do not pay customers have gotten from suing the robocallers with this honeypot <laughs> credit card? So it does take some time. So maybe like 400K so far. That's a lot. Yeah. Not compared to our other products, but the people that do it love it. There's this one guy, it's his full-time job. He just <laughs> answers the phone seriously and he like bought a like new roof for his house with all the money he's made from this. And he just answers all the robocallers, yeah. gives him the fake number, yeah. and then he's ready to rock and, and roll. rolls with it. Yeah. Wow. I literally get the spam risk, you know, on the iPhone. Yeah. Five, six times a day. I'm going to sign up for the product and I'm literally going to do it. And then I'm going to have you come back and we're going to talk about whether I got my 1.5K or not. Okay. For, if I can go and after these people. Uh, I'll photo, give you a free subscription. But, <laughs> no, no, no. I want to pay. <laughs> yeah. I want to pay because uh, I want to document the process. Yeah. Uh, photo Ninja is one of my favorites just because uh, I was telling you before, I feel like some of the products you guys have are proactive and people don't even know that it's a problem. So explain what Photo Ninja does and kind of what the problem you guys solved there was. So we're fighting facial recognition and stalking. Okay. What Photo Ninja does is it will take any photo of you, um, like that one, 
and um, make it so that it's undetectable to facial recognition and re reverse image search, but it won't change the look of the photo. So your friend will still say it looks the same, but it will look completely different with this adversarial AI changing the details. And practically why this is important is if someone wants to sign up online, maybe for a dating app, um, a stalker can go in, reverse image search, and find out their true identity. So it protects privacy, and it also stops data from being sold. Especially with these Apple privacy changes over the past few weeks, you now can't uh, identify devices as easily. So the data brokers are going to other techniques like facial recognition mm -hmm. to find out who you are. Yeah, and how did this product come up? Um, the same, this is something that I've done myself uh, and I've thought about and I thought, why doesn't everyone have access to this? And so then you're just like, <laughs> yeah. let's just productize yeah. it. What do you do during your free time? Like, do you just sit and think of like, how do I push back against something? Like, what, what do you spend your free time doing? Just like uh, fighting back these companies. <laughs> I'm the type of person to wait on hold for like four hours for $12. Really? It's about the principle and having winning, you know? Yeah, so so this is very much like there's an element of can I figure it out? And when you figure it out, then you give it to everyone and you're kind of, you know, the virtual middle finger to the institution. Yeah, I want to scale myself because not everyone is as passionate about these issues or they don't have the time to do it. And so technology is great for that. So like, let's take Photo Ninja, HOA, yeah. uh, parking ticket. Like yeah. how long does it take you guys to build one of these? Parking ticket uh, took about three weeks to build but we've gotten the product development time if we know exactly what we're going to do to about four days. Really? So you yeah. can basically, that's how you're able to build 200 plus products is just you can very quickly knock these out. Yeah, like one a week. Okay, and how big is the team working on this? It's just 13 people. Just 13 people who are not only building, but also managing 200 plus features or products, right? Yeah. Uh, and then how much of that is customer service versus actual like product development? We have two full-time customer service, 24 seven. We're very, we, we always respond very quickly and then everyone else is engineering. And that's it, that's yeah, literally that's it. it. It's very simple. We don't have sales, it's all self-service. Uh, what about like a business person or are you the business person? Um, in terms of uh, like partnerships, I, I don't think it works. I think it's better to just be on the side of the consumer. So we don't do any biz dev. <laughs> and then managing the actual business itself, it's all you? Yeah. And, and just, we have an accounting firm and all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, how much money have you raised total? 16.6 million and we're profitable now. Okay. Uh, and what's like the long-term thing here? Do you want to like just build it forever and never sell? Do you want to take it public? Do you not know? What, what's kind of the thought process? I think everyone in America can benefit from do not pay. From we, Unfortunately, we have homeless people using our product because they get parking tickets in their cars. We have crypto investors using our product and everyone in between. And so I want to take it public and have everyone in America and one day the world using it. Yeah, I literally think you're going to do that. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Uh, you mentioned crypto. I know that you've been tweeting a bunch saying that uh, crypto investors are getting ripped off. I think I saw IRS, crypto exchanges. Yeah. Like you, I mean, you pretty much laid it all out yeah. pretty clearly. <laughs> uh, what What's the problem first that you see with a lot of, because a lot of people watching that uh, are crypto investors. So wh where are they getting ripped off, whether they know it or not? So three main areas, which I'm sure you're very familiar with the space. So freezing of funds, this ha like if you make, make a mistake on the form or they just get suspicious, they'll freeze millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, we will get that unfrozen for you. How so quickly? Much more quickly than if you're talking to the customer <laughs> service department. Okay. Um, the second is um, hacked um, funds. Um, so we're building a tracing product and 
what the tracing product will do is it will force any exchange, we'll send it to every single exchange. If they have an address where it is, they have to freeze it and they have a responsibility to check. We found a law that says that. Okay. And then finally, um, any sort of ICO or misrepresentation, getting your money back. Fascinating. And so basically that's just like the equivalent of like a class action, but yeah. basically, hey, I gave you money. This was illegal. Give me my money back. Yes. Uh, do you fear that the crypto exchanges and others uh, will be similar like the credit companies and the cable companies and they won't like you as well? Or do you feel like this is actually welcomed from them? They're definitely not going to like it, but my expression in life is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The um, majority of people do not send these things into the legal department. And so when it gets sent to the legal department, it's a much more expedited process. Got it. So basically what you're yeah. doing is you are making it a better experience for the user. And usually it's the organization that's doing something that they shouldn't be doing. That's right. Got it. So it's almost like a, a, in some crazy way, like a check and balance in the system. That's right. Right. Fighting fire with fire. Yeah. And you just happen to have the legal letter, which most people don't understand how to do that, but you guys understand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you think of crypto, is this, it seems very aligned in terms of the ethos that you guys have, right? The decentralized infrastructure, kind of the pushing back against the institutions and the system, yeah. uh, you know, all the digital kind of automation. Like it just feels like you guys are so well lined up to really go serve that. Is that a single product line or is that something that'll become a bigger part? Like how do you just think about uh, a whole new industry in terms of what's going on there? Is that something that you say, hey, well, I'm going to go put somebody in charge of like go win in crypto and build crypto products? Or is it just, nope, we have 200 plus products and like this is just one of many others? No, we really want to double down. Um, I, as an engineer, I see like the law as code and like society's operating system and crypto is the perfect complement to that. How do you think about the fact that a lot of the products you have send legal letters, right? But in crypto and decentralized products or decentralized systems, there's nobody to like receive it, right? There's no address to send it to. Like, how do you get around that? I think um, rather than convincing um, a, a guy to help you uh, appeal your parking, to, like in the city to approve the appeal, you can convince the public. And the public is much more reasonable than an entrenched bureaucrat. Okay, explain that further. So an ideal world would be legal disputes are decided by a group of decentralized people. And um, if you can convince them rather than someone with an interest to deny the appeal, then of course it's more advantageous. Got it. And so basically, if you can somehow get your case or your dispute yeah. out into the public uh, in front of some decentralized group of people, almost like a jury, right, yeah. to some degree, uh, and do it in an automated, quick, efficient, low-cost way, then that would be the ideal outcome uh, from a process standpoint. And then basically, based on the merit of each case, you'd get the, the kind of end result of the conclusion. Yeah. And there is a legal framework to assign decisions to crypto. Um in the same way that these big corporations require arbitration with this arbitrator, you can require that the, the token holders uh, decide. Everything in your life, I enjoy talking to you because it's what you're doing from a professional standpoint, the crypto ethos, yeah. Miami, et cetera. Like there's a lot of these layers that are laid on top of each other. It's actually very similar. Right. And I think that the way that like Miami politics and, and, uh, kind of South Florida and, and the, um, leaning towards more freedom rather than less the ability for people to think for themselves and kind of uh, operate their life and make decisions for themselves, but also be responsible and accountable for the decisions they make uh, is very much aligned with the geography, the industries, right. And the work that you do, where does that come from? Like, what, like, why do you think that that's the stuff that you're drawn towards? I, I think um, 
I'm drawn to it because it's the better approach. Um, You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. It's the better approach. Um, Anyone who disagrees, they can go kick rocks. <laughs> I think that um, it's not even about punishing people or fairness. I think that the approach in some other areas is anti-innovation. There are products that do not pay does, like um, paying people's DMV fees where we just pay. So you don't have to send the check. Uh, do not pay. Just you pay, do not pay, and they we pay and don't charge anything more. Um, in San Francisco, you can't do that because San Francisco says money's throw it, flow it, uh, flowing through you. You have to pay 0.5% to us, not even on profit, on revenue. It's called Why? the new gross receipts tax. I don't know. but and that, So literally, because you're a company yeah. that is processing a payment, even though you make no money, yes. they say you make no money, but we as the city, we're going to make money we'll make 0.5% just for you to be here. And it's not 0.5% of the San Francisco tickets. It's 0.5% of everywhere. Even if we were operating in Cape Town, South Africa, we'd have to pay 0.5% to San Francisco. So if a user in Cape Town, South Africa wants to basically pay a parking ticket in Cape Town, South Africa, San Francisco believes that they have a right to 0.5% of that transaction. That's right. And this was the last move for us. Um, I was trying to justify being in San Francisco. But when we got this big tax bill from 2020 for gross receipts, I was like, okay, enough is enough. That's fucking nuts. It really is. Are you going to pay it? Well, uh, we're discussing that. I think, to be honest, reluctantly, uh, we'll pay it, but we'll never give them a single dollar again. Yeah. I mean, that's like to me, I've heard some pretty egregious yeah. things in these cities do. That may be up there as one of the most egregious things. Yeah, and it's not just do not pay. Anything related to fintech has these problems, so it holds back innovation. And so uh, Stripe, being based in San Francisco, around San Francisco, wherever their headquarters is, do they have to do a similar thing where they have to pay 0.5% to uh, the city of San Francisco for every single transaction that they process? Um, so there are exemptions for credit card companies. So if you're truly an incumbent industry, like maybe they've come up with an exemption, but even Stripe has moved out of San Francisco to Daly City or somewhere because of this tax. Really? Yes. So they basically, they levy a tax, which they think is going to lead to more revenue. But what it's done instead is it's driven one of the most valuable private technology companies in the world out of their city, drove you out of the city. I can't begin to imagine how many other companies have left the city all because of this stupid tax. Yeah, and fair enough on profits, but revenue is ridiculous, and it is only increasing. Agreed. I think that's I think yeah. that's the egregious part, yeah. right? It's it's not so much that there is a tax; it's that the tax is on gross revenue, not on any profit, and therefore they want to get paid even if you don't make money. Yeah, and the question we ask is, what do we get in return? And the only thing we get in return is restrictions. Right? Last year we couldn't open our business because of COVID restrictions, where Miami is completely open. So not only is it not a net positive, it's actually a net benefit, a net negative. Agreed. Uh, are you guys going to go back into like a central office or are you remote? I'm a big believer in in-person work, especially for these product-driven companies. Why? There's a magic that happens when we're all like trying to figure out how to stop the robo-coolers and you can't really replicate that remote. Some functions can be remote, but not everything. So it almost feels like you got like a little pirate ship going here and you need to all be together to like really kind of the small group take on the big organization. Yeah. And several of my team members are in Miami and we're, they're thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> they all get a raise from the taxes as well. So yeah, they basically yeah. get an implicit, yeah. right? <laughs> like this With is no amazing. Cost to do not pay. And, and now they're going to go outside. So it's yeah. even better. <laughs> well, we're working on that. <laughs> uh, we can't wear sweatshirts outside. <laughs> yeah, right? no. Only in the, only in the building. Okay. Uh, uh, that's good to know. Um, 
let's talk about investing. I know that you started to do a lot of investing. Um, why are you interested in investing? Kind of how did this come up? I am unlucky to have lots of smart friends from Stanford and also the Teal Fellowship, and it would be irrational not to invest in them because um, they asked me for that my help. Um, they're maybe like four years behind where I was with Do Not Pay, and so I want to help them and as friends. And when I see them succeed, I've had a few cases where I've helped a lot and I didn't invest. And I'm like, why didn't I invest? So I want to have a financial incentive to help them. You don't have to give an example, but do you have an example of like, hey, this is the type of uh, kind of access or like special, um, you know, uh, advantage that you have? Is there like one thing that you can be like, oh, you know, this was a friend, here's how I met them. And then here's kind of what happened. Um, yeah, so I, I really like to find companies before they hit the circuit. If you're finding them after they hit the circuit, then it's just too competitive or too high a price. So one example is uh, my friend Marcus from Stanford. He started a computer chip AI company called Luminous Computing. It's a truly amazing company. And I invested in the first round and now it's um, they've raised over $100 million Got it. from Bill Gates and others. And so when you find this person really you're finding them as a friend right and you get to know them and it feels like in that situation like you almost know them better than any other investor will because it's literally your friend that you know it's not so much you're meeting them for the first time as they pitch you a company yeah i like to think of this as creating my own deal flow sometimes i convince them to start the company in the first place and then i'll like i'll pay your incorporation just let me uh, invest tomorrow before it gets too hot so uh i've done this once or twice yeah always the best deals yeah oh, like I don't understand why it isn't focused on more. Maybe because it's hard. Maybe because like you literally have to go meet a bunch of people and then they have not starting the companies, whatever. But by far, some of the best deals are either you convince them to raise capital, start the business, uh, take it more seriously, whatever. And I don't know why though. I, I haven't figured out like what's the psychological uh, or kind of repeatable pattern there because it just feels like each one is so different, right? There's there's such wild cards, but maybe that is the pattern, right? Is that they don't fit the normal narrative or, or they're not looking to start a business. I think it's a really great business model because sometimes even three weeks later, a big firm comes in and, and then they do all the work. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when you're doing this, are there specific focuses that you have or are you just investing in the person? Anything promising based on the person. <laughs> I've done uh, SaaS, hardware, whatever, environment. What's the craziest thing you've done? Um, it's uh, still in stealth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. what, what, uh, can you say what industry or space it is? Like, is it something that people would just be like, oh, that's weird? Or uh, no, right? it's AI consumer. Okay, got yeah. it. Um, when you think about what's happening in the investing world, especially in the earliest stages, I think you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things in terms of like these individual GPs or uh, kind of investors being able to move faster, being able to go earlier, uh, being able to build a very different relationship with the founder and also being able to provide different type of help. Uh, it feels like that's the future, right? It definitely is. I think um, it's commonly said that we're seeing power shift to individuals. And it makes sense. When I was a founder pitching my pre-seed round, there would be these big committees of people and they take weeks to decide. I have unilateral decision-making authority on a phone call. And if I think it's promising, I can invest there and then and be much more helpful per dollar invested as well. So my perspective is top five, maybe top 10 venture funds. They're protected. They're great. They've built great reputations. The reason why they have great reputations is because they've been doing this a very long time at the highest level. Uh, and so whether it's Benchmark, Sequoia, you know, Andries, whoever, name your firm, uh, they've been able to kind of repeatedly compound money very aggressively, uh, be helpful to founders and build that reputation. 
once you get outside maybe the top 10, is everyone else screwed? Like, is every tier two and below firm just screwed? I think it will be uh, commoditized outside of that. So, okay. Yes. And so when you say commoditized, like it literally is just capital. And therefore, when a founder yeah. picks, it's not necessarily they're picking between differentiation of the partner or the firm. That's exactly it's right. It's just you're yeah. taking the money. Yeah. And that's the opportunity for the individual GPs to step in and say, hey, I've got some sort of differentiation that all the commoditized tier two and below don't have and therefore take my money versus theirs. Yeah. And the differentiation can be pre-investment or post-investment. Like pre-investment may be an easier process or things like that. Okay. And then post-investment, what do you see the biggest differentiations being? Um, some firms, uh, the differentiation is we leave you alone. We don't destroy the company like Tiger Global, I think that. And others um, do a lot of media. They help with recruiting and A16Z model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that uh, these later stage firms that are deploying literally billions and billions of dollars and then like, hey, we're going to leave you alone? Yeah. Is that a sustainable strategy? Is that attractive as a founder? Do you want, like you personally, do you want investors more involved, less involved? Like how do you just think through uh, who you would take money from? Because I'm assuming that goes a lot, that feeds into how you think about yourself as an investor. I Honestly, I'm such an easy, I, I'm very easygoing, so I don't mind e either approach. I think that everyone will do well at the moment because um, I've seen firsthand just how backwards uh, the the government and society is um, and technology is creating massive new opportunities. And so although we might be overvalued in the short term, in the long term, we're undervalued. In the short term, we're overvalued potentially, yeah. but in the long term, we're drastically undervalued. Yeah. And is that just technology in general or is that venture capital investing? Like, How, how do you think about breaking that down? like VC investing, because anything below like 10 billion um, is probably worthwhile. Really? Yeah. Why? Because the world is so stuck that these new companies are changing everything. Um, I come from um, a suburb in England and everything is so backwards there. They could really use some of these companies and it really creates a lot of value. One of the things I keep thinking about is uh, when my parents were kids, Everyone wanted to be a millionaire. Yeah. Now it feels like everyone wants to be a billionaire, right? It used to be that everyone wanted to build a billion dollar company. Now it almost feels like the goalposts have moved there to 10 billion yeah. or 100 billion, right? Like, like getting to a billion, it's not easy, but it happens way more often than it used to happen. And so some of that may be just macroeconomic, you know, inflationary type stuff. Uh, but some of it also is like people are just understanding the value of some of these companies. So it feels like the there's been a shift in terms of uh, a $250 million valuation doesn't seem as high as it once felt, right? Yeah. Like, like it's kind of on the path to go there. How do you see the dynamics as you're building a company as a tech entrepreneur? Like how do you see the the various dynamics around valuations and, and amount of capital you raise, all that stuff changing? I think it's really to do with the competition between all the firms. Maybe five years ago, when I was just starting Do Not Pay, they would all uh, there were very much fewer venture firms, so the collusion would be higher. I'm not saying there was any, but there was more collusion. But now everyone is so worried. Even as a solo GP, there are like dozens and dozens of solo GPs. So I know that I have to commit quickly if I want to invest. Does that make the investors better investors or worse investors? Like all the pressure and competition. I think efficiency is always a good thing. Got it. So even if you're having to make decisions faster over the long run, that should make you a better investor. Yes. Yeah. Because it weeds out the people more quickly. 
I always remind people that uh, Warren Buffett has this quote where he's like, you know, even if I'm doing a multi-billion dollar deal, I basically know within the first five minutes of the phone call whether we're going to do it or not. Yeah. And I think that scares the hell out of people, right? Because they want the uh, safety and the confidence of we did the work, right? We went and we looked at all the numbers, like all this stuff. Uh, and so to me, it, it, there's a balance, right? Like, yes, of course, you got to do diligence. You got to do some work as you yeah. get later, later in the stage of a business. But there is this element of just like if you're investing in people, you very quickly kind of have a feeling like, yes, this person is smart. This person is going to be persistent. This person is likely to have a higher probability of success versus not. Yeah, I often know very quickly. And I also know the reverse. I know if someone will invest within five minutes, even if they don't tell me. Really? Yeah. Why? Like, like how do you know? Is it just a, an intuition feeling? I, I think it's a mutual mutual feeling for sure. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, yeah. just, hey, they're not as excited as they should be. I'm not as excited, so therefore this isn't going to work. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you ever preempt telling them no? Like, like, will you ever talk to an investor and they'd be like, ah, you know what, I don't think this is a fit? I think so, because it's very intense sometimes. Yeah, intense yeah. in what? In like, what way? Uh, you have to open yourself up, like intellectual property-wise, so it might not be worth it if you don't think that. Yeah, so you just, hey, yeah, this yeah. doesn't make sense. All right, what's been the biggest surprise over the last 12 months for you personally? I thought COVID meant the, the death of startups and businesses and tech companies, or, or it would be very difficult. But the, the opposite is true. Tech has thrived. And I didn't see that coming. Why do you think uh, it's thrived? Is there like something that you can point at or is it just simply everyone went home and the only way to actually communicate and do business and stuff was through technology? I think that um, there are lots of these rules that the government and courts and um, institutions made that were anti-technology. Like lots of courts said that you have to uh, come into the courtroom, but then all of a sudden they were forced to accept technology, like Zoom court hearings, even on the Supreme Court. Um, so that has moved things forward and across many industries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and I'm assuming you saw a massive uptick in usage or things like parking tickets because people aren't driving anymore during that time. There was a loss in terms of usage. We saw a huge uptick. The biggest was cancellations. Gyms were refusing to cancel people, which I thought was unjust. Gyms, airlines, like all of these folks. And, and to some degree, you feel for them, right? You're like, hey, look, we get that you're under pressure, but at the same time, you're basically keeping people, you're stealing from them, yeah. right? Like you're not giving them a service and you're trying to keep the money. Uh, we get that you're in pain, but that doesn't mean that you should pass that pain on to the consumer. That's exactly right. Business is passing it on. Yeah. Uh, it felt a little bit like that is what people are trying to do with canceling student debt, canceling rent, like all this stuff. It's not so much uh, you solve the problem. You just simply pass it on to somebody else and somebody that you think can handle it, but most likely can't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, will you guys do anything in uh, kind of the student loan space uh, or have you done anything there before? These loan contracts are the most predatory. They can't even be dis discharged in bankruptcy. So there are actually very few laws that protect people from getting rid of their student debt. And hopefully that changes. Yeah, so it's just yeah. really, really hard to kind of get around. Yeah, uh, it feels like that's intentional. Yes, it is. There's huge <laughs> regulatory capture. Yeah. Um, are you bullish on the United States from a regulation and kind of legal and government standpoint? Or are you pretty bearish compared to the rest of the world? I hate to say this, but I'm actually very bearish. I okay. have uh, three citizenships, um, and I, I don't know how long it will last. Uh, I think I'm with you. Yeah. Like, it just feels like uh, we're heading in the wrong direction uh, on a macro basis for the country. Uh, it can be reversed, right? Hopefully it will be. Um, I think that there's a lot of people working on important work to, to do that. 
Uh, but it does feel like we've kind of lost the plot in many ways. Yeah, and I think lawmakers just don't understand what they're regulating. There are these Zoom hearings where the lawmakers uh, don't understand technology at all. So I think we need like a technical oath of office as well. Anyone who's a lawmaker should be required to like understand the iPhone. Can we put you in charge of that? I don't think they'll have me. (laughs) (laughs) You're on the not friends list. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I got three questions for you before we wrap up. Uh, First one is what's the most important book you've ever read? Um, That's a great question. Um, What's the next question while I think about that one? Uh, Second question is your sleep schedule. So our friends are ready to sleep. They gave me this bed that uh, is thermoregulated. I can put it really cold. I love sleep. Okay, do you have one? I swear by it in San Francisco. I swear by it as well. I sleep like eight, nine hours. How how did your sleep change once you started using eight sleep? I'll say it that way. I I didn't realize just how cool I need the bed, but it's changed my life. It's like the most important thing. You spend more time sleeping than anything else. Completely agree. What temperature do you put on? I'm a... uh, I'm minus five when I go to sleep and it goes to minus six, which I didn't realize was actually way colder than most people do it. I think around that. Yeah. Yeah. uh, There's somebody who I know who uh, was pretty well-known investor. And he said the first night he got it, he was like, he didn't know what he was doing. So he just put it minus 10. (laughs) He woke up the next day and had a cold for like 48 hours. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, I didn't do that, but I I do like it very cold. Uh, Third question is aliens. Are you a believer or non-believer? I would say I am... That's a great question. I, I believe in aliens. Yeah, I, I've looked into the Fermi paradox a lot, and yeah. it makes sense. Why? Why do you believe in them? Like, what? Like, what is the thing that drives you? I'm with you, right? Yeah. I think they're out there. I don't think that we've seen them. Yeah. I don't think that we're going to see them. Like, it's more of like they're probably out there too far away for us to actually come in contact. But what's the thing that you point to? And you're like, this is like the the biggest data point or the biggest thing that makes me have belief. I'm a an engineer and a geek and just probabilistically it's a certainty i mean the universe is so big um of course there'll be a replicant of uh, earth somewhere yeah that's generally the way that i think about it uh book you have one yeah i would say trust me i'm lying um i don't know if you've read ryan holiday it's a very good book and it's taught me about all the deception that big companies uh kind of guide to do do you study the deception so that then you can like almost like in a judo move use it against them (laughs) i don't know perhaps (laughs) i wouldn't say it's the most important i'd have to think about that but it's certainly a good book yeah that's that's a great answer uh you get to ask me one question to finish up what do you have for me um what does the world look like in 10 years i think it looks a lot like it does now unfortunately like i think we make a lot of progress right but at the same time, many of the things that are true today are still true then, unfortunately, right? And so what I mean by unfortunately is uh, there's the Bill Gates quote, we overestimate what we can do in one year, underestimate what we can do in 10. So I do think that uh, we're likely undervaluing technology, progress, you know, uh, the improvement, make the world safer, wealthier, you know, all, the, all that kind of stuff, healthier, all that stuff. At the same time, uh, I still think that there will be incumbents. Yeah. I still think that there will be startups. I still think there will be innovation. And I still think there will be plenty of people fighting the innovation. Like, you know, like all the structural things will remain the same. They may look different. There may be different players. But uh, the world, if you go all the way back to literally the ancient Roman times, is very similar to how it was today. It just happens that, you know, now we have super phones and then we didn't, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm one of these people who tries to separate out like uh, kind of the the micro uh, progress and movement from just like the macro situation. And it feels like uh, even if we were to move to, let's say, you know, the, the most outrageous thing some people could think of is like Bitcoin as a global reserve currency. Yeah. 
okay, we would still have incumbent firms, right? We would still have startup. Like, like you still have a lot of the same rent structural things. Yeah, 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 you still have to pay rent. Like, like <laughs> you just may use a different currency to yeah. do it, right? Uh, you still need food to eat, right? We're still gonna be trying to, you know, go accomplish certain things. And so um, I, I like to say all the time that like I'm agnostic on a macro basis just because like we have no control over that and we're not unlikely to change it. Uh, but on a micro basis, I'm very, very bullish because I think that the technology will improve. People will actually get better lives over time. And so it's, you know, it's kind of this weird thing of just don't focus on the macro stuff and just focus on the micro stuff. And that ends up being where, uh, where all the progress gets made. Yeah, I agree with that. Incremental changes. Exactly. Uh, how can people go find you on the internet or find more about do not pay? Um, it's do not pay.com or I'm Jay Browder on Twitter. All right. Uh, and are we going to get more Miami tweets out of you? I think I'm. We need a do not pay bot that is a Miami like marketing machine. <laughs> I think people don't like it. So I don't want to upset anyone. I like to be like polit- political, you know, just keep it. Oh, you like to be like Switzerland? Yeah. All right. Well, people got to go follow you on Twitter then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do not pay.com. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you.